Okay, if you have your copy of God's Word, I certainly hope that you do. Open with me again to the Epistle to the Romans, Romans chapter number 3. And uh, just for the sake of time, I'm not going to re read my entire text again because we're going to be going through it uh, and even more scriptures, but... Uh, the message this morning, as you see in the bulletin, the title of the message is Remembering Jesus, How Thoroughly He Saves Us. And of course, we are observing the Lord's table uh, at the end of the service this morning. And when we do that, we are commanded to do it in remembrance of Him. Jesus said, as oft as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you uh, do it in remembrance of me. And it's not just the remembrance of his death, but it's the remembrance of him. Remembering him who uh, was virgin born, sent from heaven, who left the glory world and stepped into the world of uh, weal and woe where we live, the world of destruction and death. And uh, he was willing to grow up in this world just like we did. He, although he was God, he was God incarnate. He took upon himself a human form, and he lived out life just like you and I do. He faced the same issues. He faced the same problems that you and I do. And he faced all the temptations that you and I face. Only he overcame them because he was sinless. And... Uh, but we remember all those things when we come to the Lord's table. And it necessarily drives us to the gospel. The gospel is good news, is it not? The gospel is good news, but it can never be truly appreciated until you see it against the backdrop of the bad news. And uh, that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to see the gospel and the work of Jesus Christ in the backdrop or against the backdrop of the bad news. Let's pray. Once again, dear Lord, I come to you desperately in need of your holy anointing Oh, Spirit of God, please enable me to rightly divide the word of truth. I pray that as I uh, uh, go through this passage of Scripture and as we uh, look at, uh, as I look at my notes, that you would just put those things in me that you won't said and help me to discern those things that are better off not said. And I, I pray that you would uh, work through me this morning, that the message might be full of 
life-giving force, life-giving power, that it may have that same life-giving power that you displayed when you raised Lazarus from the dead. I pray that it would be life-giving this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, <clears throat> we're talking, as I said, about uh, Jesus and how thoroughly he saves us. And we've read Romans chapter 3, and we begin reading in verse 21, and read down through uh, uh, verse 8 of chapter 4. Now, we could have read more in chapter 4, but uh, what we want to uh, begin to look at this morning is that backdrop of uh, of darkness, that backdrop of devastating sinfulness under the curse and wrath of a holy God. And as Paul the Apostle, the author of this letter, of this epistle, as he begins, he begins in chapter number one, uh, uh, he, he starts off his uh, treatise uh, declaring his confidence in the saving power of the gospel. He says in chapter number one, verse number uh, uh, 16, he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so he starts off beginning uh, his <coughs> epistle by declaring his confidence in the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then he dives directly into the dark and devastating uh, truth of the universal sinfulness of all humanity. The universal sinfulness and guilt of all humanity. In chapter 1 verses uh, 18 through the end of the chapter, uh, verse number 32, I believe it is, he uh, de deals with the sinfulness of man, how that uh, the heathen, <clears throat> those who do not know God in a personal relationship have no excuse because the creation itself reveals that there must be a creator. And they grew, they, uh, the <clears throat> mankind was not uh, left without this witness. I mean, God started off with Adam and Adam and Eve walked with God. They knew God. And so the message of the great God of glory has been with man. 
but man in his decline and sin since the fall had gotten to the place where instead of rejoicing in God, instead of loving the God of glory and seeking the way back to him, they uh, tried to repress the knowledge of God through their wickedness. And that's what he says, <coughs> excuse me, in verse number 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's not that they don't know the truth. It's that they don't like the truth. They repress the truth. They suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. You know, uh, I know I've said this before, but you, you can uh, remember this, that when you talk to people who say, they don't believe in God because there is no evidence, you know that's not true. There is evidence. What they're actually saying is they don't like the evidence. They don't accept the evidence. But uh, God's, the fact that there is a God is, uh, uh, is plainly seen, the Bible said. His invisible uh, attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. That's a very important statement right there. The heathen are without excuse. But I won't go through the entire chapter. In uh, chapter number 2, beginning in verse number 1, we find that not only the heathen are guilty before God and without excuse, but uh, Paul begins to talk about the hypocrites are guilty before God and without excuse. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. What about that? Now, he's not talking about uh, uh, the Jew here. He's talking about people who uh, know enough about right and wrong to point the finger at someone else and talk about how someone else is wrong, but they're just as guilty themselves. <clears throat> and so he says, you're without excuse. And then in uh, verse number uh, 17, I believe it's verse 17, yeah, through chapter 3 and verse number 8, he says the Hebrew is guilty before God. The Jew, we had to use Hebrew because it starts with an H. Uh, so uh, the Hebrew is guilty before God and without excuse because God had chosen them in Abraham and had nurtured them in spite of all their rebellions and in spite of their stiff-necked and uncircumcised hearts. God had 
always loved them and kept them as the apple of his eye, and he blessed them, even though they did not deserve blessing because they never obeyed his laws, and they hated his prophets, and they killed his prophets. And then finally, when his son was given, they said, no, we don't want you as our Messiah. And made a deal with the Romans to crucify him. And so he's bringing this indictment on the heathen, on the hypocrite, on the uh, Hebrew. And then he just comes down to verses chapter 3 verses 9 through 20 and and just brings the blank blanket indictment against all he says in verse number 9 what then are the jews any better off no not at all for we have already charged that all both jews and greeks are under sin as it is written none is righteous no not one do you believe that? None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Is that hyperbole? Or is he, is he just saying it like it is? I don't believe it's hyperbole at all. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Wow, he's talking about all of us. <coughs> he's talking about all of humanity. He's bringing a blanket indictment on all. And he goes even further to say in verse number 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned. Wow, that looks pretty bad for us, doesn't it? I mean, are you are you feeling the dark cloud, the devastating uh, condition that we're under? The wrath of God, that God is just in being angry, that God would be just in putting every last one of us in the deepest, darkest part of hell. He'd be justified. And so you say, well, man, okay, okay, you got me, preacher. I, I, I'm going to start obeying the law. I'm going to start right now. I'm starting today. I'm going to start right now. And I'm going to start obeying the law. I'm going to start doing good works. I'm going to be a good fella. <clears throat> and uh, maybe maybe my good will outweigh my bad. And when I stand before him, maybe he'll let me into heaven. That's kind of the way most people look at it, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a couple of problems with that. Probably more, but there's a couple of problems that are very evident 
in the verses that follow. The first problem that I want to ask you is, what are you going to do about the sins that are past? If you can live perfectly, I don't think you can, but if you can live in perfect obedience to the law of God and not violate in one jot or one tittle uh, from today until the day you take your last breath, I would commend you, but God won't commend you. Because you've got, you've got a history. <laughs> you've got sins that have not been cleansed. What are you going to do about that? You can't go back and cleanse them. And the only way they can be cleansed is for a sinless sacrifice. And you say, well, maybe we'll start gun sacrifices. The problem with that is God said, I'm not accepting those animal sacrifices anymore. I don't have any joy in that. Well, here's another problem with starting to do right now. Verse number 20. Look at what it says. <clears throat> well, I guess verse number 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. It's not looking good. Verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So if your plan is to start now and obey the law and, and manufacture your own justification by living a good life, the Bible says it's not going to work because no human being can be justified by the law. The law was not given, given for your salvation. The law was given to show you your sin. Isn't that what he's saying here? That every mouth may be stopped? That mouth that says, I'm going to start doing good from now on? <laughs> it, that mouth is stopped because you've got guilt in your past. And you're, you, you think, well, <laughs> surely God would smile on my best efforts are you seriously thinking that God will smile when he has already prepared a way for you to escape wrath and you're rejecting it to set up your own righteousness? No, he's not going to smile at that. So the law was given <clears throat> for to show the holiness of God. The glory of God, but the law was also given to show the sinfulness of man. And that's what it will do. It will not reward you. It can only curse you. It can only condemn you. It's just like our national laws here in the United States. Have you ever heard of them doing this? Have you ever heard of uh, uh, somebody maybe celebrating their 99th birthday and and the sheriff's department comes to the birthday party 
and said, we want to give you an, a, a reward, an award before you die because we want to celebrate the fact that you've never murdered anybody. So that law was not given so that, uh, you know, to reward you. That law is given for the lawbreaker. It's given to condemn the person who commits murder. Traffic laws are the same way. They don't stop you and say, man, you're driving good. They don't do that. They stop you when you roll through a red light. <laughs> and they don't say you're doing good. So, so that's, that's the situation that we're in. Is that dark enough? <laughs> well, what can I do? I'm sinful. The law can't help me. I've broken even the most important law. Y'all remember a couple of weeks ago we uh, uh, preached out of uh, Mark, going through the Gospel of Mark, and we preached from that section in chapter 12 where the uh, scribe came to Jesus and said, which is the most important commandment? Which is the foremost commandment? Which is the greatest of all the commandments? And Jesus said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength, and your neighbor is yourself. If that is the most important commandment, now stay with me on this, if that is the greatest and most important commandment, to break that commandment would have to be the greatest and most heinous sin. Wouldn't it? Well, think on that. Are we guilty of breaking the greatest commandment? Are we guilty of committing the most heinous sin? Are we breaking it right now? How many of us can say that I'm right this minute loving the Lord my God with all of my heart? The seed of my emotions is just, it's all His. I'm not thinking with all my mind. I'm not thinking about anything else. With all my soul, my consciousness, I'm, uh, uh, I mean, it's just all God. And all my strength, every ounce of strength I have, it's just all God's. Are we really doing that? Because I don't think we are. And we're breaking that commandment right now. We're desperately desperately lost don't tell me please don't tell me how sanctified you are don't tell me how you've got your life and your family all in alignment with the scriptures and that you're a great example you're putting forth a a great godly example to the world don't tell me that what you need to tell me is how the law has stopped your mouth tell me how you lie face down at the foot of the cross with tear-filled eyes screaming out for mercy because that's our only hope that someone, namely God, would have mercy on us. We need mercy. I have people I, I, I talk about, you know, uh, 
like Brother Jim will say, when you say, how are you doing? He'll say, better than I deserve. You know, people will argue with you about that. Don't confess that. Don't you be confessing that. Don't, don't say you. I, a cashier one time told me, I feel like I deserve a lot. And I said, I feel like I deserve, if I had what I deserve, I would be in hell. And I'm not, I'm not just talking about before I got saved either. I know you guys are a lot better. But <clears throat> that's what the law does. It sets an impossibly high standard that you and I have to just stand and tremble before it. It condemns us and it drives us to seek mercy from God. But I'm glad to report to you that verse number 21 follows. But now. Don't you like those changes of gears in God's word? But now. The righteousness, the righteousness of God. This is God's very own righteousness, which is totally foreign to us. His very own righteousness has been manifested apart from the law. Ooh. Apart from the law doesn't mean that the law has nothing to do with it because it was the law that set the high standard. He's not saying that it's apart from the law in that sense. But what he's saying is that although I have never obeyed and never will perfectly obey God's law, his perfect righteousness is offered to me by faith. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know what that is? That is the wonderful doctrine of justification. And it comes to us. And I, I want to go through. Uh, I've got four words that are in the text here. And I'm not going to be able to deal with. Because we have communion and everything. But. The first word we find in verse number 24, we're justified by his grace as a gift <laughs> through the redemption. There's two words, justification, redemption, that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. There's the third word, propitiation. And then in chapter number four, 
we find how Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And in verse number five, his faith is counted as righteousness. That is the doctrine of imputation. So I'll have to preach those maybe some other time. But uh, justification. It, the definition is that it's a legal act. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take five more minutes, okay? And that'll still give us five minutes to get started. The doctrine of justification, it, it's a legal act. It means that God declares a believing sinner to be righteous because of faith in the work and merit of Jesus Christ alone. It's a declaration. It's a legal thing. Here's, uh, that's one definition, the best definition I've so far have ever run across is one made by Warren Wiersbe. He says this, justification is an act, not a process. Hallelujah, I like that. There are no degrees of justification each believer has the same right standing before God. Also, justification is something that God does, not man. No sinner can justify himself before God. Most important, justification does not mean that God makes us righteous, but that he declares us righteous. Justification is a legal matter. God puts the righteousness of Christ on the record in place of our sinfulness, and no one can change this record. That's good stuff, man. So, just to break it down, it's a once-for-all declaration of God. A once-for-all act of God. It's a gift. Secondly, there are no degrees in justification, as Wearsby said. No degrees in justification. It's not like sanctification. You may be light years ahead of me in sanctification, but you can't be ahead of me in justification. I, every one of us. Are as justified this moment as we will ever be. Those who are trusting in Christ alone. And that word alone. That is such an important word. Christ alone. You might be more sanctified than me. But you can't be more justified. Thirdly. You, uh, justification is not exactly the same as forgiveness because in forgiveness, God's taking something away, which is our sin. But in justification, he's adding something to us and that's the righteousness of Christ. Isn't that wonderful? The righteousness of Christ. Let me read you this and I'm through. I'll stop. Uh, <coughs> four or five pages over. <laughs> these uh, words I found in a song, and I've been looking for these for years, but I found these words that were written by a uh, songwriter by the name of Catesby Paget in the 19th century. 
It says, and this is just one stanza, so nigh, so very nigh to God, I cannot nearer be, for in the person of his son, I'm as near as he. So dear, so very dear to God, more dear I cannot be. The love wherewith he loves the son, such is his love for me. And let me add this, righteous, righteous, no more righteous could I be. For in Jesus Christ the Savior, I'm as righteous as he. I mean, I know we're Reformed Baptists, but some would say hallelujah. That's, I mean, that's good stuff. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you'd take these scattered thoughts and cause them to be a blessing and an encouragement, a help and to your people and those who may not know you. I pray that you would use them to convict and draw them to repentance in Jesus' name.